Hi everyone, Drew Pro here, host of the Broken Brain Podcast. In today's episode, we have Dr. Ronesh Sinha talking to us about pre-Alzheimer's, insulin resistance, and why South Asians are at such a higher risk for things like metabolic syndrome, heart disease, and so much more. It's a fascinating conversation. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast, where we dive deep into the topics of neuroplasticity, epigenetics, mindfulness, functional medicine, mindset, and more. I'm your host, Drew Perot, and each week my team and I bring on a new guest who we think can help you improve your brain health, feel better, and live more. This week's guest is physician and wellness advocate, Dr. Ronesh Sinha. Dr. Ron, welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. Thanks so much. A pleasure to be here. And thank you to our uh, two mutual friends, Seema Mehta and Dr. Mark Bahana, who has been on the podcast talking about uh, uh, sleep apnea for uh, connecting us. Absolutely. Special shout out to Seema and Mark. Yes. <laughs> so... I know a lot of your work and you're known for the specialization in working with South Asian communities. And we're going to get into the unique lessons that you've learned from them and the unique challenges that population uh, deals with. But really why I was excited to have you on this podcast is that your work is so much bigger. It can be applicable to everyone that's out there. So I want to start off by laying the groundwork for individuals. You know, I like to say that the individuals that listen to this podcast, they consider themselves professional amateurs. And I'm definitely one of those professional amateurs. They like to go deep into the topics, but maybe they don't necessarily have training in like, uh, you know, medicine or, or nutritionist, but they want to understand. So let's start off with the basics, but we can go a little bit deep with those basics. Sure. And I want to start off with the first thing, which is insulin resistance. Tell us a little bit more about it and why it's so crucial when it comes to our health. So insulin resistance is a very complex topic, and this is one of the most critical concepts I think doctors and patients need to understand in a way that's really simple so they can apply their daily lifestyle to it. And I think the way I'd want to start off with it to really keep it simple is when we consume carbohydrates, our body breaks it down into glucose. And one of the most compelling images I use in talks and in my book is I tell people, think of that glucose molecule as being a car and you've got three parking lots in your body. There's more than three parking lots, but the three major ones are your muscle lot, your liver lot, and your fat parking lot. And in an ideal situation, especially after meals, we want that glucose car to roll into your muscle lot so your muscle can burn that for fuel, for energy. And the way that car gets inside that muscle is by using the hormone insulin. So that's kind of like the parking pass that gets the car through the door. So literally when we're saying you've become insulin resistant, what's happening is your muscle is no longer responding to that signal properly. So now we've got this overflow glucose traffic. Some of it's maybe sneaking inside, but what do we do with that glucose traffic now that it can't get into our ideal destination? And that's where that overflow traffic can go in various directions. It can go towards our fat cells and it can be turned into fat. It can inflate our fat cells and that's where we get obesity. It can go to our liver and the liver can basically store it as glycogen or it can actually turn the excess amounts into fat, which is why we're seeing an epidemic of fatty liver. And then the liver can expel that as triglyceride particles and cholesterol. So you can see that just from that, what I call a glucose traffic problem, you can get all these downstream metabolic manifestations that can present at any age. So I'd say at a high level, that's how I look at insulin resistance. But when you dig deeper, you realize there's a lot of complexity and we can unravel that as we go along with this interview. And just make the link from insulin sensitivity to insulin resistance to 
like full-blown diseases that we all know that are out there that have names that we would recognize. Good point. So when you are insulin sensitive in an ideal situation, if we sat down and had a breakfast with some carbohydrates in it, then our muscles would be acutely sensitive to that insulin parking pass. So a good amount of the glucose, and actually in an ideal situation, about 80% of our glucose after a meal would go into the muscle, and some of that would be stored in the glucose parking lot, and some of it would be burned for energy. As we slowly become insulin resistant, what's happening is we're losing that ability. So the muscle is becoming less responsive to that insulin parking pass. And as a result of that, the glucose will gradually start to elevate. And even before the glucose elevates, you can see other changes. So let's back up before glucose issues. Sometimes what happens is with that parking problem, you might already start seeing changes in your body habitus. So you might be gaining a little bit of extra inches around the stomach. You might see some subtle changes in your liver panel or um, your cholesterol panel because some of those changes might precede the glucose abnormalities by 8 to 10 years. And this is a key point that I really try to train my patients and physician colleagues on is do not wait for the glucose to go up to identify insulin resistance. Look down at your waistline. Start looking at your lipid panel early on and look at your triglycerides your HDL. We'll dig more deeper into that, but look for those precursors. And if you want to back up even further behind that um, is look at your family history. Like, are there individual family members that have insulin resistance? Did your mom have gestational diabetes when she was pregnant? These are sort of the early things that you can look at. Now, one of the things that happens early on in life is even when our muscles are becoming a little bit insulin resistant, our body responds in a specific way to keep the glucose down. And what it does is your pancreas actually produces extra amounts of insulin. So it's like your body's producing more of that insulin parking pass, and that can overcome that early insulin resistance. So it can keep your glucose levels in good shape. But over time, think of your beta cells in the pancreas, which produce the insulin as being a battery pack. You don't want to wear that battery out early. So if that pancreas is happening to work over time, over time that beta cell is going to start to burn out. And now it can't produce enough insulin to push that glucose into that muscle parking lot. So, so that's sort of the spectrum of starting off with insulin sensitivity, then early, early stage insulin resistance that can precede glucose abnormalities by 10, 15 plus years. And then if we don't intervene at that point, the pancreas starts to burn out the beta cells and we start seeing glucose going into pre-diabetes, diabetes zones. So that's sort of the spectrum. And not just pre-diabetes and, and diabetes zones, you wrote this incredible article uh, talking about Alzheimer's, right? So yeah. tell us about the link with insulin resistance and what we know so far when it comes to something like Alzheimer's and brain health. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, this connection is one of the most compelling things. When I sit down with my patients in the clinic, and I, and I practice in Silicon Valley, so I see a lot of people with very strong brain power, and a lot of them are desensitized about the heart, I feel like. But when they hear about the link between insulin resistance and Alzheimer's disease and neurodegenerative disease, that really gets their attention. And really what's happening is when you've got that glucose abnormality and you're changing the fuel systems in the body, you're actually causing a lot of things to happen. So the glucose elevations themselves can have a degenerative effect on the brain. But that hyperinsulinemia, when we're overproducing insulin, that excess amount of insulin, so we need insulin to survive, but it's like anything else in the body. When you have too much of a good thing, it becomes bad. So when you have excessive amounts of insulin, it can actually prevent your, um, your brain from actually clearing amyloid, which is one of the damaging substances that accumulates and causes you know, Alzheimer's. So. Many listeners of this podcast know about amyloid plaque from That's right. people that are here. So the link that you're making is that this traffic jam yep. of glucose makes it tougher to clear the amyloid plaque in the brain. Exactly. And how does that happen? 
Well, it's a good question. I mean, basically um, with hyperinsulinemia, so there are enzymes basically on a daily basis that can actually help degrade and clear amyloid. But when insulin is actually elevated, it interrupts those enzymes from that clearing process. So that's one of the ways that actually ends up working. Um, and then, like I said, the combined, you know, the other issue is um, we should also, as much as I kind of disconnect insulin resistance from the process of inflammation, and I think you've spoken very eloquently about inflammation in other shows, but insulin resistance is intrinsically an inflammatory condition. So your body's inflammation levels are revved up. And as we know, neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's can also be highly inflammatory. So if you've got a glucose abnormality, excess insulin, and inflammation is turned up, you're really setting up the matrix for Alzheimer's to basically take place. And that's why we're seeing like a 50% increase in type 2 diabetics of Alzheimer's disease. So it's something we got to take very seriously early on. We've had uh, Dr. David Perlmutter on the podcast, and he echoed an important point that you have made in that article. And... Uh, in other places and podcasts, he said, you know, if you want to think about reducing your risk of Alzheimer's, look at what your lifestyle looks like today. Yeah. And you put out a term that I actually really loved. And, you know, so much of public health and getting people excited is using the right language. Sure. And you put out a term that obviously makes sense, but I had not, not had clicked before, which is pre-Alzheimer's. Just right. like we think of like pre-diabetes. Yes. Which is you are on the verge of becoming a diabetic or having type 2 diabetes. You put out a term called pre-Alzheimer's, and you were putting in kind of quotes. Sure. It's not a medical term. Right. Yet, maybe one day. <laughs> maybe, who knows, yeah. So for those listeners that are uh, interested today, if they wanted to look at their lifestyle now mm-hmm. and uh, their labs, yeah. and if they wanted to understand if they're in that range of pre-Alzheimer's, yeah. in quotes, what would they be looking for? So I would say from a very simplistic level, again, if we focus on that insulin-resistant process, you would look at the same factors that I look at when I'm evaluating risk factors for diabetes or heart disease. So so basically, insulin-resistant parameters would be looking at your lipids in a little bit of a different way than a lot of doctors would. It's a focus on the triglycerides. It's a focus on the HDL, which we call the healthy cholesterol. So typically, if the triglycerides are high and your healthy cholesterol levels are low, um, that could be a sign of early insulin resistance. If your liver function tests are up, that could be a sign that a lot of traffic is basically going towards the liver. Um, If your inflammation levels are up, so, you know, as part of my sort of metabolic six-pack, I've added the HSC reactive protein as being a really important marker. Now, I do want to put a disclaimer in that a lot of people feel like when their CRP test comes back normal, they feel like they're out of the woods, but it's not a definitive marker for all types of systemic inflammation. So you can have a completely normal C-reactive protein, but still have low brewing sort of insidious inflammation happening. I'd start with those. And then body metrics wise is paying attention to your waist circumference. So at a high level, you know, I tend to focus on labs that anybody in a traditional healthcare system can get, but definitely beyond that from the exciting work that Dr. Bredesen and others are doing, there's toxicology screens, you can do APOE testing, you can definitely take it a further level, which I know Dr. Pullmutter would be more of an expert at discussing those, but but starting with these first level, first order tests, you can already identify a lot of risks in the general population. Now you talk about carbohydrate when we carbohydrates and when we first started and its important role in insulin resistance. When you look at our, if you would diagnose the sort of world that we live in today, especially in Western society, but now that's pervasive and every other country is now starting to mimic us. What do you see on the landscape? Just big picture. I would love to hear it in your words that is contributing to this 
massive wave of insulin resistance that's out there. Yeah, I mean, you know, first of all, I think insulin resistance is is pretty much demonized. And I've actually contributed to that process because we really think of this as being a completely toxic process in the body. But if we were going to step back for a moment and think about insulin resistance, it actually has a lot of adaptive um, potential. It's actually got things that protected us in our native ancestral environment. So let me give an example. If you're out in basically an environment and you're brain needs to depend on glucose for fuel because you need to do whatever, you know, something maybe, you know, to fight, flee, et cetera. You need to sort of cognitively be intact. It's not a bad thing for your muscle to be a little bit resistant to insulin. So some of that glucose can go to your brain. So metabolically being in times of insulin resistance can be adaptive. And like anything else, unfortunately, when you have an environment that kind of takes advantage of that at a very excess, so if you're really flooding the system with carbohydrates year-round, then that year-round insulin resistance can be a big issue. So you would almost say the way that we talk about chronic inflammation. Yes. Right? Inflammation is a core process in the body. It's an important part of our survival, our healing. You're really making the distinction of chronic insulin resistance. Exactly right. And you know, that's a really important distinction because a lot of my patients that have made phenomenal changes in their diet and all their numbers are great, they've reversed their conditions, they still text me late at night or send me email messages about why is my morning fasting blood sugar 105? It's off the charts. Or, you know, they'll kind of pigeonhole one data point or maybe they're wearing a continuous glucose monitor and they're getting nervous about these sudden elevations in their glucose. And I tell them, you know, it's not abnormal for your body to go through intermittent transient periods of insulin resistance. I used to panic over these two because I was glucose phobic. I'm like, oh my God, why is my glucose above that level? But you've got to look at the overall snapshot of what your body's trying to do. Sure, if you see persistence in that, if glucose numbers are consistently high, that's a trend line we need to stop. But for example, this is a very common question I get is if my A1C, which is a marker of our average three-month sugars, if that's normal, all my metabolic numbers are fine, and I have a fasting glucose of 105, you know, all the studies that I've looked at, am I going to develop more diabetes and heart disease? And what I remind them is if you look at the studies of pre-diabetes or impaired fasting glucose with an elevated fasting sugar, typically that is in a population that's metabolically deranged. These are usually individuals that also have metabolic syndrome and other inflammatory conditions around that. Yes, in that context, having a morning blood sugar occasionally of 105 is going to be a problem. But in somebody who's insulin sensitive, physically active, doing all the things that you, Mark Hyman, myself, we all preach out there, you know, I'm not worried if they have an occasional glucose spike. And maybe some people might argue against that, but I really do think insulin resistance does have some adaptive purposes in those sort of transient spike moments. So you mentioned another term that listeners of this podcast are familiar with, but I always like to cover the basics again, metabolic syndrome, uh, which is a combination of a bunch of different things. Can you just explain um, when what you mean by that? Sure. So metabolic syndrome, it's a very, it's a very ugly term. It sounds very complicated, but it's a very neat way for you to kind of look at some of the key elements of insulin resistance. And all of the terms that you can look at on the, this item list can be basically gleaned off a regular lab report. So on your lipids, I know I mentioned triglycerides, but if you have elevated triglycerides, typically a level above 150. Yep. Yep. And if you have an HDL level for females, basically that's less than 50 or for males, less than 40, that's to protective healthy cholesterol. You're looking at elevated waist circumference, so it's not focused on body mass index. You're really looking at elevated waist circumferences, or some people expand that to a waist-to-hip ratio. 
Um, your blood pressure cutoff is there as well, too. And then your glucose. And I kind of modified that a little bit in my practice. I kind of call it the metabolic six-pack. I kind of adjusted the cutoff. So instead of a triglyceride level of 150, I ideally like it below 100. I find that when people are below 100, they maximize insulin sensitivity. Their HDLs go up, inflammatory markers go down. They just do much better. So I'm very rigorous with that cutoff. And I would tell you that a lot of major healthcare institutions, they use a cutoff of 200, you know, 150. And there's a few that use a cutoff of 400 to 500 for triglycerides, which to me is appalling. So I would tell everyone to sort of make sure you adjust that number when you look at your lab report to 100 to 1. And, and yeah. let's even take a step back even further. Yeah. Because I think there's a lot of individuals who are now starting to understand that cholesterol in the way that it's commonly used and most physicians out there, I would say are trained to yeah. focus on just the cholesterol number. They're starting to become aware that it's a lot more of a dynamic story and we need to look at all parts. So we're going to come back to Absolutely. cholesterol, sure. but important part of your narrative and the work that you do with the South Asian community and other individuals. And for listeners, this podcast is just really understanding the role that triglycerides play in the body. So let's even start off the beginning. When we look at triglycerides on our on our blood tests or our labs, many people can see elevated triglycerides mm -hmm. and they'll go into their doctor's office and they'll say, they're a little high and that's it. And they put more of an emphasis on just the cholesterol component. So what are triglycerides and how do they actually get formed? What can they tell us when they're elevated inside the body? Yeah. So Cholesterol physiology is very complex, but triglycerides basically, remember when we talked about that parking lot diagram, right? We were talking about how that extra glucose can get basically shifted to the liver, and the liver can basically, when it becomes overwhelmed, it can produce these triglyceride particles. So when you think of storage forms of fat in the liver and the fat cells, the storage form is essentially triglyceride particles. When the liver ejects to triglycerides, triglycerides can't be floating in the blood freely. What the liver does is it packages up those triglycerides, the storage fat, into molecules called lipoproteins, which are like tiny boats that carry cholesterol and triglyceride cargo. So when the liver ejects what we call VLDL, which is a type of boat, you know, it's a lipoprotein boat, it's loaded up with those triglyceride particles. So essentially, when you have high triglycerides, what it's telling you is that your body if we specifically go by system by system, is number one, your fat cells are probably overwhelmed. They're overstored, and now they're expelling triglycerides. Your liver is actually overwhelmed because your liver, initially what it does is it stores glucose as glycogen. But I tell people when your liver glycogen parking lots start to run low, it doesn't have the capacity to store it as glycogen anymore. So it takes the extra glucose, and it converts it to triglycerides. So really at a high level, when you see elevated triglycerides, it's telling me that your metabolism is in this high storage over overloaded state. And because it can't handle it anymore, now it's expelling these particles in the bloodstream. And that's a marker of really an overstuffed, you know, overcapacity system, you know, and make the link of, you know, we've for a long time, and we Mark has talked about this in some of his books, and, and Malcolm Gladwell talked about this in his podcast series, but a long time, the, the blame was on fat, you know, fat uh, was making us fat. And right. in some cases that 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 could be there. But then really understanding the role that sugar and carbohydrates would would play so you you know you mentioned glucose but again i just want to link it a little bit further what are the types of diets that you see out there the types of foods that would people would be eating in excess that traditionally would be causing higher levels of triglycerides yeah so that was a big sort of paradigm shift for me when i started this work 15 years ago is because when i'd see people with high triglycerides intuitively like we talked about this is a sign of increased blood fat 
it made perfect sense to put them on a heart healthy, low fat style diet. And I still was not seeing results in a lot of these patients. And if anything, sometimes their triglyceride levels were going up. And the sad paradox for me was basically I was recommending that I was doing the same thing in myself. And I watched my own numbers actually inflate as well, too. So already I understood that, you know, this low fat, low um, cholesterol type approach isn't really helping the situation. And that's when I really dug deeper into the science, um, not just for my textbooks, but looking at studies in the UK and Canada in particular, where there is a tremendous amount of metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance. And they've done really deep studies to sort of look at this phenomenon in certain cultures and populations. But basically repeating that experiment over and over and really focusing more on the carbohydrate intake and then lowering that and watching the triglycerides drop was just a powerful connection. And that connection happens in such a short time. I mean, we see individuals that have had decades of high triglycerides. They've had every medication thrown at them. And just over a three to four week period, if we just change that one macronutrient, you can see triglycerides drop by 50 plus points. So it's a powerful thing. And that's actually one of the ways as a practitioner, I recommend people motivate their patients because we were talking earlier before the interview about sometimes if you set small goals and patients can achieve those, they're ready for the next step. So one of the first things I do is when I see high triglycerides, to me, it's like the most gratifying, easy number to change. I'll make a few changes in the diet, lowering that carbohydrate content. And then I tell them, come back in one month and let's just check a triglyceride. No other lab. It's the cheapest workup to do. And usually we'll see that number drop. And they're like, holy crap, I can't believe it. What do we do next to get it down lower? Hey, by the way, I'm also feeling a little bit more energetic. I lost maybe an inch or so, but that's a really, really powerful way to get people motivated is to show that direct connection between carbohydrates and that triglyceride result. So let's go back to your origin story. You hinted at it a little bit. You yourself were following a diet of low, you know, caloric restrict, like, you know, low calorie, right. low fat, what would be considered like a heart healthy diet. So personalize it for us. What was your, you know, what were you eating? Like, what did your average day look like? <laughs> so morning and the morning was steel cut oats and a banana. Mm-hmm. Um, lunchtime. Which a lot was, of people hear that and they're like, they oh, do. they think that's healthy. And this this is where I've got to put the disclaimer in because a lot of people have heard my story and now they're deathly afraid of oatmeal. And this is where I tell them <laughs> that you've got a personalized information because I have plenty of very insulin sensitive individuals. I've got patients that are elite athletes. They're very physically active and they love their oatmeal in the morning. Right. There's so many things that go into it. How active are That's you? exactly How right. How much are your muscles working because that's going to increase yes. the parking spot availability yes. for that glucose that's inside there. And we're going to get into bio-individuality sure. and we're going to get into personalization. So always a disclaimer that what works for one person doesn't work for another, Perfect. but there are themes. Yeah. So yeah. let's go back to what you were eating in the day and what themes we can extract. Yeah, from it. exactly. And I think looking back in retrospect before that, I realize now that I probably, I definitely had some insulin resistant tendencies that I was personally not aware of. So, you know, the other synonym for insulin resistance is carbohydrate intolerance. So I had some level of carbohydrate intolerance. So unfortunately, having steel cut oats and a banana, a whole wheat bread sandwich for lunch, and then having quinoa, brown rice, and, you know, I'm not vegetarian, but having meat or fish curry along with that, that was enough to sort of really overfill those muscle glycogen stores and make my condition much worse. And the reason I think my story resonates is because when people come in to see me in the clinic, they sort of have a disclaimer. They tell me, you know, I don't know what's going on. I eat healthy, you know? And it's true, the people that I see in Silicon Valley, they're not drinking Coke and eating pizza all day. They're getting metabolic syndrome and type 2 diabetes off too much quinoa, too much whole wheat this, 
too much really healthy curated food, which, you know, generally, if you looked at the nutrition guidelines, you would say that they're following all the, they're checking off all the boxes. But this just tells you, again, I, I, the, the analogy I tell people is that muscle parking lot, it's got fixed capacity. And when it's full, there is no valet parking space for steel cut oats. It is full, right? Whether it's Coke, other carbohydrates, it cannot take it on. And then it's got to send that overflow traffic to the different directions that we talked about. So that's really key. Which is also important, this sort of modern day movement, which is like now it, health is a lot more trendier, at least talking about it. And so there's a lot more people that are becoming vegetarian or vegan or other things. And everybody's just trying to do the best they can. You were trying to do the best that you right. can. But that has also led to, for some people, an increase in what they think, again, are healthy foods. But uh, you have a phrase like grainitarian. Right, right, right yeah. <laughs> Can you explain what that is? Yes, because um, although, as you know, in our population, we have a high percent of Indian vegetarians, right? Yes. But as I started doing dietary intakes, I realized that there was a minimal amount of vegetables on their plate. I mean, even though they were calling themselves vegetarians, you know, you, you, a traditional Indian plate is you'll have a lot of rice, flatbreads, lentils. And I kind of joke in my corporate talks, I have a picture of a, a talia platter. And usually you have like two cucumbers and a tomato. And I say that's purely for decorative purposes. People don't actually eat those. Right. But you know, vegetables are really not a central fulcrum of at least um, a lot of South Asian diets. So, so I, I really make that point because I want all individuals, whether they're vegetarians, carnivores, you know, carnivores might be a, a different <laughs> situation, but you know, whatever your um, dietary, um, you know, type is, you know, how do we really make the diet more plant centric and really make vegetarians true vegetable Aryans? You know, we really want them to take more of those diverse plants in. And one last thing too is, as you know, when they do actually eat those vegetables, they're typically very overcooked, um, what we call sub G or Indian curry. So we like to cook the nutrients out of them. So you can't even recognize what kind of vegetables are on your plate. So literally so there's, true. you know, there's hardly any phytonutrient value on that plate of food, which is the diet that I grew up with. And we're going to get back to the sure. South Asian population right. in a second. The other component is that so many of the products that we buy at whole foods and other places, which again, they're trying to do the best they can have some version of processing that creates extra amounts of carbohydrates or added sugar yeah. to it. You know, people aren't sometimes when people, I mean, how many patients have you had that are so surprised that they're pre-diabetic when they come in and see you, right? Yeah. They're like, I think of myself as being pretty healthy. Right. And you're telling me I'm, I'm pre-diabetic because they don't think of themselves as drinking Coke, you know, or eating a bunch of junk food or eating a bunch of candy and sugar, but it's now in the actual health foods that we're purchasing a lot of times if they're highly packaged. Absolutely right. I mean, you know, even with a specific example is the gluten-free movement as well, too. Um, a lot of those gluten-free packaged foods are so high in starches. So as much as my patients are conscientiously trying to reduce their amount of gluten to lower inflammation and other conditions, they're watching that their body weight's going up. You know, they're in, you know, a lot of times their triglycerides or glucose, those other parameters are going up, too. So, so more than ever, we have to really carefully scan these packages because whenever, like you said, there is a trend or a health movement, right now it's more keto, paleo focused. Um, I tell people be very careful about the bars that they're consuming because, because as you know, a lot of them have artificial sweeteners that can game the numbers on the net carbs, but what are they doing to disrupt gut health? I'm sure that's a topic you've covered before, but I think more than ever, we have to be very con careful as consumers when we're consuming these even newer generation health foods. So let's go back to your story. You talked about a little bit of what you were eating. What were the health effects that you were experiencing from being on that diet and lifestyle? You know, frankly, at that time, I was already in a fog because my wife and I had um, newborn twins. So I, I can't really tell you that metabolically, I felt like I was different at all. I was still going to the gym. I was exercising four to five days a week. 
Um, you know, I had a busy practice. And that's one of the things is when you've lived in that state for some time, that's sort of your normal. You it's don't like actually know. Yeah, right. In boiling water analogy. <laughs> it, it is exactly right. So I was kind of in that state already. But what shocked the heck out of me was looking at my numbers. I could not believe that my triglycerides were like 300 plus. My healthy cholesterol was dropped. My metabolic syndrome criteria were off the charts. And that was really a big jolt to my system. Um, and then only later after I sort of went through the changes that corrected those numbers, did I feel like, wow, I've got a lot more energy now. Like I feel so much different than I did before. And a big part of your work is educating other physicians now and I'm sure like most physicians, at least the ones that have come on this podcast have shared that they didn't get a lot of education in nutrition, you know, in medical school. So what was the impetus to even, you know, you always had access to the numbers that were out there, but partly it's the interpretation of knowing what's important and know what, knowing what to focus on. What happened in your story that um, you understood what numbers to give weight to <laughs> and not give weight to? I mean, once I, I started really deeply looking at the research and other populations as well, too, and understanding that, you know, and, and luckily at that point, I was so obsessed after I had those numbers, I kept repeating my tests. And that's a benefit I have of being in a clinic and working as a doctor. But then I started looking at absolute numbers and ratios to sort of see what direction the numbers were going in. And that was a big, big learning point for me because I realized that, you know, even though these numbers are getting better, that was the triglycerides and HDL, for example, why is my LDL going up or why is my total cholesterol going up? So initially that was a bit of a paradox to me, Drew, but then when I put two and two together, I realized that, okay, this makes sense because as I'm becoming more insulin sensitive, I'm creating more healthy particles, you can actually see an elevation. As my HDL is going up, that's going to elevate the total cholesterol. We can dig into that more, but but basically you'll find that, you know, the, one of the frustrating things about your standard labs and you know the labs have to do this is they have absolute cutoffs for each of the values and sometimes my patients will come back and they might have been all white like there was no reds but now because they've elevated their health their healthy cholesterol by 15 to 20 points their total cholesterol is flagged red and they're like oh my god you know my primary care doctor told me that my cholesterol is too high now i'm like well we have to look at the ratios and the composition of that profile so that's one really critical piece is looking at the numbers through the right lens and and that's why a lot of my work is really teaching both patients and physicians how do you look at that number in a different way than just looking at absolute values and these arbitrary cutoffs? Not arbitrary, but just cutoffs that don't apply to all folks. So part of the, the modern movement around health, if you look at a lot of like the documentaries that are out there, whether it's you know on Netflix, other places, people get very... Um, Is there a specific one you're referring to? Because <laughs> I've gotten a lot of emails about that one. Yeah. <laughs> right. We don't have to call it out. <laughs> you know, right people are very, uh, it's, it's like what you eat is now sort of a religion oh, yeah. and there's big debates on it. And a big part of the narrative and story that you talk about is that there are differences between different groups and there's bio-individuality and not everybody responds the same way. And then within two people of the same population set, one might be more active, one might be less. It's so personalized. It's not an exciting story for a lot of people because we want to say, what's the one diet that everybody should be on? So within your work of within the South Asian community, what did you understand about the impact of culture and ethnicity when it came to something like insulin resistance and metabolism? So this insulin resistance thing is affecting the entire globe, right? This is just a, a major issue in all cultures. But what I started realizing is in specific ethnicities, um, this insulin resistance problem is much worse. And what I mean by that is for many individuals of Indian and Asian background or Filipino background, it takes very little excess weight 
for them to develop severe insulin resistance. So you can look at somebody who's of you know Northern European background, sit them down next to somebody who's from South India, and the 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 European on the left might have extra body weight, extra body fat, much more than the one on the right, but he may not develop those metabolic issues. There's a bigger layer of safety, um, you know, metabolic mechanisms in place that insulates that individual from developing insulin resistance. We unfortunately don't have as much insulation in the sense that it can take very little excess fat, particularly the bad type of fat that we call visceral fat, before our metabolic numbers go up. So that's a big problem because if you take people of, let's say, Asian and Indian ancestry and you expose them to a Western eating environment, and this is one trend that I see is because, again, because I'm in Silicon Valley, a lot of my patients are immigrants from other countries. So they literally left, let's say, China or India eating what was somewhat of an ancestral diet. And within a year, they move over here and they're just eating all the Western foods. And you kind of remember the term in college, which was the freshman 15. I call it the immigrant 15, or sometimes it's immigrant 10. They only gain 10 pounds and they come over to the U.S., but all their numbers go haywire. And sometimes I'm looking at their old reports from India or China, and I'm comparing it to this, and their numbers have gone completely crazy. And, you know, one, one thing I, I remind people is, you know, the Western diet in America has been bad for a long time, but I feel like um, people that have lived in that environment, they've had a gradual adaptation period, but still we've seen escalating obesity and things. But when you take somebody abruptly out of, let's say, an ancestral Asian or Indian environment, and you immediately expose them to these types of foods, we see the numbers go up, they, they skyrocket. It's the, almost like a, a shock to the body. It's like a shock to the body. Um, when I've had relatives visit me, like for weddings and other events, it's amazing because they're here for like a couple of weeks, and sometimes they'll gain like 20 pounds. And they're like, where the heck did that come from? You know, they just, and it's not like they're eating tons of food but the but the process chemicals it's like it's like activating their immune system it's like they're ex exposed to all these things that they're not used to in their native land and it's causing all these sorts of diseases so it's pretty scary what's happening would you say that's also similar to what we've seen with like native american populations that uh were you know living very traditionally and kind of exposed to western diets and lifestyles often through government programs of yeah. providing them subsidized foods and why there are I mean, it's so complex. There's so many layers that go into it, but it, would that be a similar example? It's exactly similar. So the Pima Indians specifically um, are a very similar situation. So so they are probably the one of the populations that are even more insulin resistant than Asian Indians. I mean, they have sky high rock, rockets, um, I'm sorry, sky high rates of type two diabetes, fatty liver, all these insulin resistant conditions. So it's in parallel. And one of the common binding factors is when you take ethnic groups that basically traditionally come from equatorial regions or warm climates, that is an area where basically they actually have lower metabolic rates because the ambient climate is so hot, right? So they actually have less of a type of fat called brown adipose tissue or brown fat. And that fat actually increases our body temperature and it can actually burn more fat. It can burn more calories. And, you know, people that come from warm climates, they have less of that. So when you put them into air conditioned rooms, you put them in a modern environment and they've got less of that tissue. Literally, if somebody's sitting here and they've got less brown adipose tissue, they're burning less calories at rest. And we see that consistently in people that come from climates like, you know, India and, you know, obviously ancestral Native American type environments. So, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of overlap and parallels between that. When did you start to make the connection that, uh, you know, you saw yourself in the larger population and decided to do something for the South Asian population specifically with what they were dealing with with this health crisis? Yeah, I mean, if I'd just seen a few isolated cases, I think I would have still been motivated, Drew. But this was like, I was shocked that when I'd have individuals come into my clinic, 
the vast majority of them, and now I basically have the term that every Indian or Asian that comes into my clinic is probably insulin resistant until proven otherwise. I mean, that's how common it's become. And then the other thing is when I'd actually check their family history, just seeing how rampant it is in other family members, immediate family members and cousins. Like there is just something going on that has gone unfortunately viral, right? So when I saw that sort of trend and then I realized that I feel helpless because I don't have resources to really engage this population. I mean, literally in the early days, I'm handing them a flyer of the Mediterranean food period pyramid or like, you know, some of their food nutrition diagram that would have 60 to 80% carbohydrates at the base of it. I'm like, what exactly am I handing out? That was my motivating factor is that we've got to create different resources for these populations. So what were some of the things that you did for your own health? Right. How soon before you started to notice a difference and what were those differences that were there? Yeah, I mean, this started many years ago and I wouldn't say, obviously I was not even close to being the first, but we did have a tradition and a history of low carbohydrate diets and some, you know, research around that already. So I never went on like the first generation Atkins where I was consuming, you know, highly processed meat. You know, the first generation of Atkins was not particularly healthy, but I definitely realized that I've got to lower a lot of these starchy foods, even the healthy starchy and foods what, in my what, diet. What, besides oatmeal, what were some other things you guys were eating in your home? Yes. Yeah, so, so in our home, basically, um, with kids, I mean, we would have Italian type meals, Mexican type meals. We'd have a lot of veggies and some meat with that. But definitely there were starches like pasta. There was rice. There was quinoa. There was noodles as well, too. So so that, that that's what, it, what was happening the before picture. And, and but, I think just to interject, yeah. sometimes people argue that, hey, look, in India or wherever they're from, if they're South Asian or like if they're Chinese or if they're, a, you know, some Asian background that's there, who are these individuals that have this sensitivity to you know, the insulin uh, resistance, they're like, we were eating rice all the time. We were eating all these different things. Yep. Right. Comment about that if you could. Oh man, that's like the most common thing I get. And literally, so, so one of the most compelling slides I put in a lot of my presentations is I have a picture of uh, an Indian rickshaw puller next to somebody who's a software engineer in a company. And so then I list off items and I compare it. So basically what I say is, here's a rickshaw puller. And on average, a rickshaw puller uh, walks and runs over 40,000 steps a day while pulling heavy loads, right? And they're usually either shirtless or they're wearing a tank top. They're exposed to vitamin D. My engineers, for example, I actually used to track, and I still do, I track their activity steps. And especially back when I started doing this, my average engineers walk about 2,500 to 3,000 steps. They're about, you know, they're multiple folds less active. They're not lifting heavy weights. I mean, in that comparison, if, you know, if you're the rickshaw puller, you can eat rice very freely just given the circumstances of your physical activity, those because muscles again, being... Because, increased the number of parking spaces... Exactly right, yeah. ...that glucose to That's go right. into. Exactly, right? So then you do have to adjust. And now I'm not telling... And this is my big message is I'm not telling my engineers to drop their jobs and start pulling rickshaws on the 101, but I tell them that there is a happy medium in between where you can activate your body on a more regular base during work hours and after that engages those muscles so you can start consuming some of that. So it is a mismatch thing, right? So definitely we need carbohydrates, but everybody has an individual level of carbohydrate tolerance, and that's where we have to make the impact. Now, the interesting thing is many of my patients were rice and oatmeal and these starches um, truly made their numbers worse when they actually become more insulin sensitive. You know, so we talked about differences between individuals, but within an individual, when they lose that weight and they become more insulin sensitive, well, guess what? I'm not banning rice lifelong. They can have these starchy foods at the right appropriate times when they learn how to use it. As we know, starches and carbohydrates in the right way can be powerful fuel for our muscles. It can help us perform better. We can raise our VO2 max if we're getting more energy while we're exercising. So, you know, that, that was a message I thought about putting in my book, but I'm like, 
like I think too many people are going to take advantage of that and think they're ready to eat more rice. So I didn't quite go into that depth. But it is neat to see over the last decade plus that some of my patients have started off highly insulin resistant. Now they don't have to be carb phobic. They can have some of those healthy carbs in moderation at the right times and they thrive off that. So so when you started going back to your story, when you started to make a lot of these changes that were there, what did you notice in your own health? So in my own health, the, the most compelling things is my waistline started going down. My triglycerides, so that was the most abrupt drop. When I looked at my trend lines, the triglycerides dropped almost immediately. And that was kind of shocking to me that, you know, I can have such an abrupt change so quickly. And then cognitively, energy-wise, even though I was still sleep-deprived with work and, and newborn twins, I just found like I was more focused mentally. So then I started seeing those shifts. And then in Alliance, really my first generation of patients that I was seeing then, a lot of us were going through the same experiment simultaneously. And I wasn't, you know, you know with them, I wasn't telling them to be quite as drastic, but many of them, when I was starting to measure the amount of carbohydrates they're taking in, they'd be at the 400, 500 plus grams of carbohydrate per day. So for many of them, it was literally getting them from that to even 200 grams. We saw tremendous differences in their numbers. So, so as I sort of, you know, follow this cohort along the way, we all experienced this sort of improvement. And I think that was more energizing that made me dig into the science more and then really turn into more of a public health movement in corporations and communities. That was sort of the next stage of that. One of the terms that was probably popularized in the South Asian community you talk about is this idea of skinny fat, which now a lot more people know. And that I would say from being a vegetarian for a long time, I, I just grew up very trim. And yeah. then I would probably was in that, I was starting to head in that direction before I started to make some changes. I was vegetarian for a long time. I was vegan for a long time. I wasn't working out. I was in tech. I wasn't a programmer, but I was sitting a lot. Uh, so what is, uh, describe skin, skin, skinny fat. And why is it so important for people to understand if they're at boat? Um, because we traditionally think of, you know, you are healthy if you are trim. Right. So let's break down um, fat into two different compartments. There's actually other levels to it too, but at a very high level, and this is another compelling image that I use that maybe uh, listeners can visualize. Think of a jelly donut, which is maybe not a good analogy given what we're talking about, but I tell people, think <laughs> of fat as being a jelly donut and the outer crust of the donut is your subcutaneous fat. So subcutaneous is really 70 to 80% of our total fat mass. And that varies in each individual, but that's the majority of the fat that we carry around. Now, inside that jelly donut is that red jelly. That's the inflammatory fat because really that subcutaneous crust is relatively inert. When you look at it under a microscope, there's really not much going on. It just adds to our total body weight. But that jelly, that inflammatory jelly in the middle, that's really the um, fat that is metabolically active. It releases all types of hormones and substances that can promote inflammation and insulin resistance. Now, in each individual, there are relative differences in the proportion of that crust to jelly. So interestingly, if you look at um, a Caucasian population, there's probably a little bit more of a balance between their crust to jelly ratio. If you look at African-Americans, they tend to have a little bit less of the jelly and more of the relative subcutaneous fat. In Asians, including East Asians and Indians, we have a very high proportion of jelly and a thin rim of that subcutaneous crust. So what does that look like in a human being? That basically means that we're carrying less of that you know, weight contributing fat, but we have more of that hidden visceral fat that lines our organs that's deep inside, fat. the dangerous fat that's more inflammatory. So again, when you think about that glucose car that we thought about, when you have fat or glucose going towards the fat cells in each individual, there's going to be some partitioning that takes place within that fat cells. There's going to be a certain percentage that's going to go towards the crust, the subcutaneous fat, and a certain percentage that's going to contribute to the visceral fat. And in 
populations like Asians and Indians, there's a higher percent that's going towards visceral inflammation. That's a big problem. Because the thing about the visceral fat is it's not only more inflammatory, guess what? It sits proximity-wise, it sits right next to the liver and the digestive organs. We talked about how the liver is a major issue. And what happens is the visceral fat cells, they're very, um, they're not as structured to the subcutaneous fat, so they freely communicate with the blood cells and they dump these fatty acids directly into the liver. And that's why you can get a lot of these skinny Asians that have sky-high triglycerides. So I take care of a lot of or couples. Fatty liver. Or fatty liver, exactly. So one example I'll give you is I see a lot of couples in my practice and families, and often you'll see the husband and wife come in. And this is, sorry to stare Type. This is a common scenario, but not all the time. But but often the husband's very skinny based on body mass index, and the, the spouse, the wife, might be 20 to 30 pounds overweight. But when I look at their metabolic numbers, obviously the wife's complaining, how come he's skinny and you know all this is happening? He but can eat whatever. He can eat whatever skinny. he wants, right? You've heard this before, right? Totally. Exactly. But then you look at the lab report side by side, and he has got sky-high triglycerides, low HDL, all the factors that we talked about. So metabolically, he's much more diseased then his wife, who's actually 20 to 30 pounds heavier, I look at her numbers and her numbers are pretty pristine, especially before menopause. So we see a clean metabolic profile with the extra subcutaneous fat. And we'd like to get some of the subcutaneous fat down. Right. But this is kind of highlights. more overweight. That's right. Like say stereotypically. Exactly right. But she's not at maybe as high of a risk of heart disease that this gentleman, I mean, she, there may still be some challenges there. Absolutely. But he might be a lot more further along to have you know, a heart event. Yeah. And the evolutionary reason for that is because, again, women were evolutionally designed for childbirth, lactation, etc. Subcutaneous fat. The other thing you're well aware of is subcutaneous fat is a storehouse for toxins. Yeah. So that's why in a woman's body to really promote healthy pregnancy, you want to have more of the subcutaneous fat. If you're exposed in the heart of China or India to a lot of pollution and toxins, which are everywhere, your body's going to actually produce a lot more subcutaneous fat to store and insulate the blood system. Because remember, I said the visceral fat, it sits right next to the major highway, which is your circulatory system. The subcutaneous fat, I also call it the suburban fat. It's on the outskirts and it stores away those toxins so you're not exposed to that. So, you know, I, I do a lot of this explanation because a lot of my women that come in are very frustrated and I have to do a lot of reframing from them. And I tell them there's an evolutionary reason why you have more of that subcutaneous fat. Believe it or not, a lot of women that complain about hips, their hips being wide, I tell them that guess what? Your hips actually have more omega-3 fatty acids and that actually helped promote brain development in your son. So your son might be going to Stanford because of your hips, right? So, so you know, we have to do a lot of reframing to understand that there are reasons why these adaptations totally. take place, right? Why Absolutely. Men's and, bodies are men's and women's bodies exactly. are different. Exactly, yeah. And additionally, sometimes to look at the root factors that are there, a lot of functional medicine doctors will look at the toxic levels. We'll look at the persistent organic pollutants that are in the body. We'll look at the heavy metals. And if somebody, for instance, had, you know, five or six mercury amalgam fillings. Yeah. I know at our clinic, the doctors there will say, well, maybe the body is holding weight on because it's a survival mechanism. It's trying to protect the rest of the body because these pollutants are lipophilic. They're being stored in the fat cells as a way to keep them away from other aspects, which is, I mean, some people theorize that might be one of the reasons that breast cancer is so common for a lot of women is because all the toxicity that's being stored there. In addition to other factors that are around. Absolutely. Totally agree with that. Yeah. So for somebody who's listening, who's not from the South Asian or Asian background, you know, what are the takeaways from them about how that population is responding so severely to like our Western diet and lifestyle? 
I mean, the message is even I know we focused on that population now in all ethnic groups. So despite me having a practice that's called the South Asian Council practice, I see people from all ethnic backgrounds. And now we're seeing a lot of Caucasians, Europeans and people from these so-called low risk communities where there was no history of diabetes. And all of a sudden their son or at a young age, they're presenting with similar types of issues. And one of the key reasons for that is because the sedentarism, right? A lot of these folks that are working in high tech companies that are not walking, they're not doing really um, active forms of exercise, and they're often eating. The interesting thing is when you go to these corporate cafeterias, a lot of the Indians and Caucasians are all eating those Asian foods in that environment. So they're all eating a lot of the abundant carbohydrates while they're sitting throughout the day. But but the thing I think the most compelling thing to understand is within one generation, we're seeing those insulin resistant factors happen. So all of us have to be aware that we're all at risk. I think the advantage that non-Asian populations have that I see in my clinic is when they do implement a ketogenic or a low carbohydrate lifestyle and they amp up their exercise a little bit, they tend to more dramatically lose weight and their numbers go down much quicker, both both in males and females, compared to my Asian Indians and my Asians, where we might have to do a little bit more work around that. And one of my theories behind that is because if you look at the average Indian versus the average, let's say, Caucasian or European, the average Caucasian tends to have more lean body mass. They tend to have more muscle. So they've got already intrinsically more muscle parking lots in place. So once they dial down the carbohydrate intake and they get a little bit more active, their body's programmed to really burn that fuel. But for a lot of my Asian Indians, they've never exercised. Their ancestors never exercised. I'm having to reteach them, like, what is a squat, for God's sake? You know, like, how do you do these things? So it's starting from scratch. And this is why it's important in our kids to start that process early on, because otherwise it's a really uphill battle for, for a lot of individuals to make those changes and get those muscle parking lots insulin sensitive again. And you were talking about the cafeteria. We're seeing now even more, again, people wanting to be more plant-based for the environment. So there's a lot more consumption of grains and quinoas and brown rices that are there. Yes. And then are having the same responses. Maybe the South Asian population is more, you know, I don't know if the right term is sensitive to responding quicker because mm -hmm. they're, it impacts their body quicker. Right. But now we're seeing that happen to so many more individuals. Exactly. And okay, let's say traditionally there might be a lot of um, South Asians in tech or in medical fields and sitting a lot and doing those things, but now our entire society is sitting a lot. Exactly right. You know, one of the examples, um, you probably know I'd recently done the podcast with Peter Atia, who's very well known in the health space. Great podcast. And if you if you looked at his old numbers, his baseline numbers, I, I kind of tell people that he was basically metabolically and phenotypically South Asian. I mean, he had all the manifestations. So, so even a lot of fit people, you know, a lot of athletes I'm seeing that even though they're performing really well, they become highly insulin resistant, which seems totally counterintuitive. And one of the things that I find is even though they're training hard in their in-between training hours, sometimes they're so sedentary and they're really overfilling although they have more room to consume more carbohydrates sometimes they're overdoing that and now even their bodies are responding in an adverse way and then on top of that if you layer on the other elements i know we haven't touched on yet sleep and stress is being a major issue that's another thing that we're seeing is contributing tremendously to this whole insulin resistant problem now a lot of people know that south asian population is is quite unique from your work because even though they're sometimes some of the highest in, at least in the U.S., yeah. because they would have the means to be able to leave, you know, India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, these other countries. They had the means to leave over, and their families, you know, they have the ability to like emphasize education and other stuff. Sure. They end up having a very high, you know, average income in the U.S. and a lot of education that's there, but they are at some of the highest risk of diabetes and of one of the highest risk, if not the highest risk for. Um, for heart attacks, right, right, right. Uh, 
Now, I believe it was a couple weeks ago, there was a big uh, study that was published talking about like the interventions that are out there of stents. And uh, I don't remember the exact uh, study, but I think you might mm-hmm. know what I'm talking about. Are you familiar with this? They were talking about the interventions of yeah. lifestyle versus, versus like, more invasive putting stents. Invasive. Right, exactly. Right. exactly. So yeah. I want to talk about invasive procedures that are out there. So the first thing that kind of blew my mind is that when Dr. Mark Hyman, forget about South Asians, but just everybody in general, most people that come in with a cardiac event into a, a hospital have normal, like within range cholesterol, mm-hmm. right? So that goes back to this large idea of like, we totally misunderstood cholesterol and the role that it, that it plays. So for people that are getting their uh, numbers done or they're going to their doctor and the doctor says, listen, I want to put you on a statin because mm-hmm. your cholesterol is a little bit higher. Yeah. Help us understand why these traditional interventions are not always going to get us to the root issue that we need to be fixing and addressing. Yeah. I mean, first I want to say that definitely in specific populations are at highly at risk. I'm not from the anti-Stanton camp, but definitely um, I think it's being overdone because in a traditional system where you've got limited time with patients, you see abnormal cholesterol numbers, it's very quick to sort of pen a prescription for a statin versus giving proper lifestyle changes. But I think the critical thing we need to understand is if we are only focused on those absolute numbers that we talked about and we see an LDL that's above range and we put patients on drugs, you're only touching upon one very small part of the overall cardiovascular picture. Because again, there's got to be inflammation. There's other metabolic abnormalities like insulin resistance that are playing a role with this condition. And keep in mind that some of the medications that we use to treat that one single number, they can often make insulin resistance worse over time. They're not actually leading to your waist circumference going down. There was one study that showed with it within four to six months after starting statins, on average, patients tend to gain weight. And the reason for that is because they see remarkable changes in their lipid profile. They're like, heck, I'm bulletproof. I can eat whatever the heck I want now, right? So you see that a lot in South Asian communities. Oh, where completely. People are like, they over medicate. Go eat, yeah, or drink. You know, exactly the right. Things that I want to have because now I'm on this medication. Yeah. So I mean, I think the key thing is again, medications are there as a background safety net. But we have to do everything possible to address all the things that you highlight so much, the stress, the diet, the lifestyle. Those are the things we need to do. And then I tell people, even if you need to go on medication, if we can minimize your numbers, at least we're lowering the dose of medication or the amount of medication that you might need going forward. But let's not quickly, reflexively jump to medications as a first line, because, again, they're only lowering risk by a very small percent. When you were working with these uh, more traditional communities, South Asian, Asian, other population sets, one of the big parts of it is like, well, what the heck am I going to eat? <laughs> right. So what were you finding that was a way to both honor, you know, cult, food is so cultural. It's so linked to our roots. Often, if you're an immigrant to this country, it's one of your ways to maintain connection from where you came from, regardless sure. of what country you came from. How are you helping them navigate? Were you putting like Indian uh, <laughs> recipe cookbooks together? I sure wasn't. And, and I still haven't done that. There's <laughs> far more skilled people that can do that. But but so I tell people when, when I see patients in the clinic, as you know, South Asians and people from Asian culture, we can be really good negotiators in the marketplace. So I use some negotiating tactics when I go in the clinic. I'm like, you know what? There's a few foods that I'm probably going to try to cut back on or maybe initially we're going to cut away. But I'm actually going to give you back some foods that you thought were bad for you. Because I think even in the Asian communities, as much as we've sort of made the connection, it's been more popularized that, you know, dietary healthy sources of saturated fat and dietary cholesterol don't have as much of an impact on our lipids. That's still not really a mainstream message in India and other countries. They're still very fixated on low-fat diets. They think ghee is the center of everything. These vegetable oils. Exactly. So give give us three foods, for example, that they previously thought or like, you know, one, two or three, however many you want to. Give us a food that they previously thought 
was super unhealthy for their health. And now you're adding it back in yeah. along with the education to help them understand why this food isn't healthy. Right. So, so some amount of the healthy saturated fat in the form of ghee, for example. So for a lot of our um, patients, ghee in small to moderate amounts is fine. And, and as you know, from Ayurvedic tra traditions, it can have some anti-inflammatory healing properties. So, so really good sources of saturated fat in moderation can be perfectly fine for that. Um, the other foods are basically, you know, again, coming back to the starchy foods, many of them think that, you know, if they just switch from white to brown rice, they're in good shape or they're making a lot of their other dishes like idlis and dosas with brown rice and lentils, but they don't realize that that carbohydrate load can be excessive. So then we have to sort of teach them how to sort of not cut out, but lower that amount of basically those healthy carbohydrates in the diet. So that's the other key thing. And then you're right. You mentioned the vegetable oils. This is a really critical factor because a lot of uh, my folks that have actually lowered carbohydrate amounts, they're still eating a lot of foods out in restaurants. Like they'll be doing DoorDash. They're going to the Indian grocery store. Um, they're visiting the Indian corner of the corporate cafe. And even in the most rich companies in Silicon Valley, none of them are really using high quality vegetable oils. They're still using the sort of standard vegetable oils out there. So then the second part of my pitch, which are what, for example, for yeah. So like the, the canolas, sometimes sunflower, safflower, a lot of these types of oils. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and so, so that's another sort of thing that I have to explain separately is what impact is that having on the cell membranes? How is that actually affecting the insulin signal? So I know we focused a lot on the parking lot, but you know, the surface of that parking lot, those cell membranes where they're not healthy, they can't respond properly to the insulin signal. So, even if you're eating a lot of low-carb meals, but they're out in restaurants where they're not using the right cooking oils, that might be a reason why you're still suffering from some brain fog where you can't get the A1C down right One away. One of the things so. you talked about in the Peter Atia podcast is you were talking about the link between mitochondrial dysfunction, if you could explain what that is to the audience, and how mitochondria is damaged by these unhealthy fats that are so pervasive in our in our world. So yeah. what, what is mitochondrial dysfunction and how do low quality fats like vegetable oils, the low quality ones like canola oil, how does that affect our mitochondria? Really good point. So coming back to our muscle parking lot. So when that insulin signal hits, you know, when that insulin parking pass hits that muscle parking lot, what happens is the glucose enters inside and the glucose can go in various directions. So number one, the glucose can be stored in the parking lots as glycogen. Um, the other place it can go to is it can go to our mitochondria, which are our powerhouses and the powerhouses or the engines in that cell can convert the glucose into energy. But for our engines to basically do that in a really efficient way, they've got to be healthy. They need to have adequate enzyme capacity. They've got to have good aerobic function. Um, when you expose that mitochondria to unhealthy fats, it's like resting your engine, basically. Those unhealthy fats, when the mitochondria tries to convert them to energy, you get these byproducts. So think of the rust as being those oxidant factors. So these highly inflammatory molecules are released. And even though you're still burning fuel for energy, you're now creating all this metabolic waste. And over time, that can make the system much worse. The other thing, too, is the reason this problem gets worse is in a lot of people that develop insulin resistance from a very early age, they don't have adequate aerobic capacity. So, you know, one of the um, studies that they've done in young children of, for example, Asian Indian descent is they've already sort of looked at their activity habits and tried to estimate their VO2 max, which is a marker of um, aerobic capacity. And they find compared to all ethnic groups, we tend to have the lowest amount of aerobic output. And that's a big problem because that means when glucose comes into the parking lot, less of it's really going to the mitochondria and more is going to be stored as glycogen or being turned into fat. So, so that mitochondrial health is key because when the mitochondria is working properly, it's getting the right clean sources of fuel. It can pull away a lot of the extra fats and glucose and turn it into energy. So we're not in that storage state, if that makes sense. It makes total yeah. sense, you know, uh, and to like make that connection for a lot of people here, um, 
of course, I'm, I'm South Asian descent. I'm from India. And when I go and visit India, one of the big things that's happening there that's sort of like a public campaign is getting people, they're still using the you know vegetable oils, yeah. but just getting people to change their vegetable oils more regularly uh, because yeah. a lot of people would reuse and reuse and kind yes. of cook with the oils, especially restaurants. Um, and that wasn't always the case in Indian history. You know, vegetable oils are very much a new thing yeah. right? in like the, the societally, you know, in the last you know, 50 to 100 years since we've been using vegetable oils that are there. And you see just how pervasive it is because there's this fear of, of fat. And that's why it's that's why we're fat is because we're eating these different fats out there. So let's use vegetable oils. It's a cleaner oil that's there. And you you have um, a lot of Indians also too, South Asians, especially if they're vegetarian, they have super high omega six and very low omega three yeah. inside of their body, which makes them much more likely to develop all sorts of different conditions. Right. You're so right. It, it's literally, we've used the word visceral to describe fat, but it is a visceral reaction because if you were to Google and look at, at a picture of, of a plaque inside an artery, it literally looks like a tub of ghee. Like it looks like saturated fat, right? So so for a lot of these folks to actually accept the fact that that saturated fat is having minimal to no impact on their disease is, is a big stretch. So that's where coming back to using data I mean, we can convince them that triglycerides are a form of blood fat. So even when sometimes, you know, I might have one member of the, um, you know, one patient who's bought into this and they come in with their spouse and their spouse is like, I don't, no, 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 he's terrible. I'm like, let's do a one month experiment. Nothing's going to happen in one month. You know, if something happens, it's not because of a dietary change over a month, but let's just look at his report card as metrics and let's maybe try to switch out a couple of these foods and we'll add some healthy amounts of fat. Let's add a little bit of butter. You can have some more eggs. Let's do this. And I promise, I promise if those numbers go sky high, we'll dial it back. In nine times out of 10, they see phenomenal improvements. And now I'm saying that, you know, his body fat has gone down, his blood fat has gone down, his fatty liver is moving in the right direction. So that can make a really compelling argument when you're kind of faced with people that, you know, emotionally can't really make the connection between how could fat not be bad for me. So let's shift from diet and go into those two other areas that you had mentioned, uh, you know, movement and, and sleep, and also stress too, which you've talked about as well. Um, let's talk about sleep. And we've done a couple podcasts, including with our dear friend, uh, mutual friend, Mark Brahenna. But how does sleep impact, we'll bring it back to the beginning, something like insulin resistance? So one of the most important messages around sleep is a lot of people are fixated on sort of the hours of sleep. So whenever I have individuals come in, I ask them about sleep. They're like, don't worry, doc, I got it covered. I sleep for eight hours. And that's where I really have to discuss what is your bedtime? Because physiologically, sleeping from 1 a.m. to 9 a.m., like a lot of my high-tech engineers do, that's a completely different animal than 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. So then we have to talk about the different halves of the night, like the first half of the night, where we're producing a lot of the growth hormone, a lot of the chemical messengers that can help stabilize blood sugar. Like, what does that look like when we can actually go to bed earlier? And then again, in my patients that are having elevated blood sugars, often we see that when they go to bed earlier, even independent of any dietary changes, often their blood sugars get better. And they're like, wow, they can see that metabolic connection. So we have to understand that there is physiological processes happening throughout the night. And you can't just sort of ignore that first half of the night and sleep the second half of the night and think you're going to get that. And this is a big issue in all populations. But as you know, in some cultures, including Asian Indians, naturally, they tend to eat very late and they tend to go to bed really, really late. And this is a number one. It's part of culture. I know, I know even my family in India, when I went back to visit them, sometimes they'd be having dinner between 10 and 11 p.m. Right. So it's crazy how late they eat. So that's one pattern. And then the types of foods that they're eating are those elevated carbohydrate content type foods. So so this is a big shift. And that's one of the other bargaining chips I use with my patients is, listen, 
if you don't want to change what you're going to eat, can we at least change when you're going to eat it? And sometimes they will. I'll, I'll, like, I don't even want to hear about what you're eating, okay? Because it's just, it's just going to send my blood pressure up. But just let's make an agreement that you can finish eating those foods by this hour. Because at least now we're giving the body some metabolic rest for a minimum of maybe 12 hours to start off with. And even in those cases, we'll see their triglycerides and glucose move in the right direction. And then like we talked about, that's when they start getting engaged. You see that number drop by maybe 5 to 7%. What's next? I feel a little bit better. Well, hey, now we can focus on some of these other things. So, and those 12 yeah. hours, you know, so if their last meal is at 8, they're going to have, you know, nothing between 8 and, you know, 8 a.m. Exactly right. Yep. That's a really easy way to start. And for yeah. the ones that are more willing to go a little uh, further, uh, where does fasting play into the role? So fasting is one of the most powerful ways we can reverse a lot of these conditions. But the disclaimer I would tell you is many of my workaholic patients that see me, they think they're fasting already because many of them, they skip breakfast already. They have like a coffee or tea. They're out the door. Oftentimes, they're not even going to eat lunch. And then they come back and they're having their dinner. So they tell me, hey, I've been fasting all day, but how come I'm not losing weight? But I'm like, you're not fasting in a very healthy way. And again, it comes down to the timing of what they're eating. Because when you're insulin resistant, your body is preferentially dependent on glucose as its primary fuel source. So it's constantly expecting glucose throughout the day. And if you're in that metabolism, when you're sort of starving yourself, the second half of the day, we see individuals doing a lot of overeating. They're snacking like crazy. They're having heavier dinners. So the key thing is, the first thing I tell them is before we even start fasting, let's just change the composition of the foods that you're eating. Can we lower the amount of carbohydrates so your body's used to maybe burning a little bit of its own fat or it's used to burning some dietary fat, which you haven't been exposed to in the right way. And that's sort of a good transition plan. And when they start feeling good with that, and then I tell them you're eating breakfast, let's lower the amount of carbs in your breakfast and make it more high protein. Maybe we can push the breakfast out a little bit. Now, some people, they'll go full out. They'll go from the worst case scenario to fasting 16, 8, 16 hours of fasting, 8 hours of feasting, and they do fine. But I'm gentle and deliberate in many of my other patients because for them, that feels like starvation and sometimes it can backfire. So we want to transition them gradually to becoming a little bit more insulin sensitive and then maybe go from 10 to 12 to 13 to 14 and now they're starting to feel really good but it can be incredible because again those parking lots the liver it's getting decompression time um, and you can see numbers just drastically come down and then i'm not really you know the thing for busy doctors is giving dietary advice on macro micronutrient composition can be overwhelming but if we can at least intervene on the timing aspect of it and then address the macro micronutrients later that's a huge win have you noticed anything with different population sets benefiting from fasting at different times? For instance, I find that I do better when I eat in the morning mm -hmm. and then I don't eat like lunch. I'll, I'll do like a fast for lunch. And I always remember my parents, uh, obviously my parents being from India, whenever they would do fasts, like not full day fast, which obviously they would just have water throughout the day for different religious purposes and things like that. They would often have food in the morning. Mm -hmm. And then they would fast for the rest of the day. And I've tried to do sort of more the, you know, coffee in the morning, yeah. skipping breakfast, skipping lunch, and then eating relatively early. Like I would say that's more, more of the fasting that's in Western mm -hmm. uh, society now is people not eating in the morning mm -hmm. and then eating later on in the day is sort of the, or if, whether it's time restricted eating or whether it's full on fasting, that's some of what I see. Then I was talking with, um, uh, some folks at uh, Walter, Long Walter Longo's team, and they were saying that, you know, a lot of the blue zones around the world, they don't uh, skip breakfast. Mm -hmm. When they fast, they'll have food in the morning, they'll have breakfast because the brain requires fuel, and then they'll skip later meals throughout the day. What have you seen with your patients of what works and 
how they can personalize fasting to meet their own needs. Really good point. I mean, definitely have some individuals that despite me trying the traditional, you know, it's it's an easy sort of win to have them try pushing breakfast out or skipping it every now and then, but it can absolutely backfire. For some individuals, they just wake up, they feel weak no matter what we try. They feel like their body needs energy. And I'm definitely not from the anti-breakfast camp. But what I tell them is just like you said, if you at least finish your dinner earlier, having an 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. breakfast, you've probably still given your liver a good 12 to 13 hours of fasting. So literally, you've done a light fast already. So there's nothing wrong with that at all. And then also for a lot of our individuals, um, we do find that their digestive enzymes and things just work better in that early period of the day and the middle part of the day. So I encourage them to go ahead and follow that pattern. So yeah, there's definitely no heart set rule. You're absolutely right. I find in my Western population patients that they tend to skip breakfast and have no problems at all. One of the other ways I might personalize the breakfast option is in my patients that are measuring their blood sugars. Now I did mention that occasional spikes in blood sugar, I don't worry about, but if they have consistently impaired fasting glucose, elevated blood sugars in the morning, the message I give them is your liver has already made breakfast for you and it served it in your bloodstream. So in the morning you're waking up and your glucose is already high. I would actually wait and get some physical activity. And if that means getting to your corporate campus earlier and walking for 10 to 15 minutes to burn off the edge of that and then having your breakfast later, you know, having a late delayed breakfast makes a lot of sense in that case. But many wake up and they feel good energy. They feel hungry. I don't think we should be paranoid about eating breakfast, but we just want to create some spaces between the meals in some form. We talked about the beginning of the podcast, how important our muscle mass and the size of our muscle mass is to helping us with insulin resistance. So for Anybody that's out there that identifies as skinny fat, <laughs> right? Right. What are the practical ways that you bring into your audience and your population that is listening to you and this, um, of how they can begin to increase their muscle mass and work it into their uh, busy schedules? Yeah. So one thing. So w- what we're really talking about at the root is we want to change individuals' metabolism. And you know, the, the way I explain metabolism, I tell people I like to pronounce it as metabolism. And the reason for that is the meta word itself means that our body is taking all these complex systems and creating a unified message. It's a meta message. And what this message really is in each individual's body is this person is either highly sedentary, this person is moderately active, or this person is highly active. And the whole point of being active and doing exercise throughout the day is we want to convince our body that we're moderate to highly active individuals. If you can do that, then the rest of the systems fall into place. You're going to be burning fatty acids when you need to. All the chemical messengers are going to work in alignment. Now, with physical activity in motion, so after I sort of set that stage, I tell people, if you go to the gym for 30 minutes in the morning and then you sit all day, you can't trick your body into telling it that I'm a meta-active person, right? So even if you didn't do the 30 minutes, if you can keep yourself lightly physically active throughout the day, you're going to be burning glucose and fat and staying very insulin sensitive without necessarily doing formal exercise. So so for exercise, because, you know, a lot of folks from our background, they don't like the idea of going to a gym. It's a very foreign concept. So I work on walking steps, do some sort of native squatting type things, and we just teach them some basic exercises. Every Asian has witnessed or experienced a squatting position for various reasons. <laughs> you know, can we sort of bring that back and then gently do that? So one talk I recently gave at Oracle, the whole topic of the talk was how to stay active during work hours. And now I got bullied into actually starting an Instagram page. So now there I'm actually posting pictures of the different positions that I work in, in a semi-squat position with the resistant bands on my thighs. How do I do certain things? And I'm convincing my body to stay physically active. And the way that you know your metabolism is shifting 
is because all of a sudden you start to get very fidgety when you're sitting still. And I've noticed that. Like I sit on planes or after this podcast, I'm going to probably go walk in Santa Monica because I start feeling very antsy when I'm sitting for too long because my body's trying to burn energy and it wants to keep me active. The opposite of that is people that are sitting on a couch and you ask them to stand up and you need a forklift to get them off the couch. They're in an energy storage mode and you can easily shift that gradually. So that's kind of at a high level is start with those frequent interrupted pieces of movement. Start improving your diet and your metabolism will shift to using its own fat for energy. And that's really where we want to take people. One of uh, the things that uh, my friend and business partner, Dr. Hyman, says is that, you know, one of the first rules of eating is Let's eat a diet that is not continuously spiking our blood sugar. Yes. And a lot of individuals who are listening to this podcast even, they're aware, now obviously listening through you and other podcasts, they're aware of the challenges with constantly spiking our blood sugar, but there's not always that connection. So in the spectrum of making that connection, you have things like continuous glucose monitors, Mm -hmm. which are devices for anybody that's not familiar, that you can actually have, it has to be prescribed, right? Right, right. It has to be prescribed by a physician but you can wear it, it'll give you a regular reading of what your blood sugar look like, looks like. And then there's different prick tests that you can get, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which don't require a prescription. For the average person that's listening out there today, if they wanna make a better connection between their lifestyle and the food that they're eating and seeing whether or not they're continuously spiking their uh, blood sugar, what are the options that you are the starting place that you bring them to? Yeah, so so really good point. So I think the, the, the way you want to visualize this as well is that message we talked about is that beta cell that produces the insulin, it literally is like a battery pack with a limited lifespan, right? So when we're spiking that battery pack throughout the day, we're going to wear that out and we're going to wear out the life on that battery pack. By the time somebody basically develops blood sugar abnormalities, we've lost about 40 to 50% of that beta cell function already. And that's why I'm so passionate about people identifying insulin resistance at the earliest stage possible, because then you can protect that battery. So exactly like you said, if you have frequent spikes throughout the day, that's like turning on multiple apps on your phone and draining the battery. If we give it spaces like we talked about with fasting, and then you have these occasional gentle spikes at mealtime, then you're going to preserve that battery lifelong. So now if people want to get quantitative about that, and it's funny because I I recently, I used to do so much data tracking that I became obsessive, not to the Peter Atiyah level, but I decided that I'm going to start not doing this as much. But I did recently get myself a continuous glucose monitor just so I can show patients pictures of what my profile looks like. And most of the day, it's literally a flat line with a couple of spikes here and there. And so I tell people these glucose spikes are pretty much like insulin spikes. This is what you want it to look like. And then I've got an anonymous picture basically of some of my patients who are eating like they are. And they see these spikes all the way throughout the day. And I tell them, which battery pack's going to run out quicker? And when that battery pack wears out, that's when we get into trouble. Now, if you want to do continuous glucose monitoring, that's one way. If you want to do the finger stick glucose, can it's we, a very can we talk easy about way. That for just one sure, second? yeah. So a lot of people want it, and <laughs> right. they're not always sure the best way to get it because, again, you need your need a physician to prescribe it. Okay. Uh, any recommendations, hacks in the system that you might recommend for somebody who is interested and is like, you know what, I really need to be you know, I want to know and I want to have that data of how I'm eating and living and whether or not I'm continuously spiking my uh, blood sugar. How can I get one of these, you know, devices? Can they have an honest conversation with their physician, even if they don't have, even if they're not pre-diabetic or anything else and just say like, 
this is something that I'd really like. You know, can they present any research to them to get them to uh, order it? For you them? are such a mind reader because this is one of my mission statements is I want to really destigmatize the use of these monitors. So that was the other reason I got it is it is such an easy process through to just get one and use it. So I'm literally going to do a detailed blog post on my process of doing this. And I think the way to really convince your physician, physicians are so overwhelmed with a limitation of time. And the last thing they want is all this data coming at them. I'm used to seeing it, but it's true. It can be overwhelming because some of my patients are like constantly emailing me or they're coming in with their glucose graphs or like, why did this happen here and there? So I think the first thing is if you come into a doctor who's not familiar, which is most doctors, you want to let them know that this is something that I'm sort of doing for myself and I just want to understand the data, you know, because they probably are just afraid that you're going to dump all this data on them and all of a sudden your doctor is going to have to make decisions around this. But this is going to be an independent venture. And then literally all the doctor has to do is write a very simple prescription. So I'm literally on my site going to mention this is how you write a prescription to Costco or whatever. And Dexcom actually, they're website if you're using the Dexcom unit has great videos but it's a little bit overwhelming but I think as a physician I'm going to do that I'm going to train a lot of the doctors in my own practice how to do that and I think that's something is we have physician champions that are doing this and obviously IFM is a wonderful venue for that there might be a big forum where people do this as well too it's it's a no-brainer I mean when people have in the future that we really should have a prescription for for these glucose monitors so I, I think there will be a day when there won't and I actually had a meeting with the CEO of Dexcom to sort of discuss this issue and as you can imagine there are so many sensitivities and risk associated with this. So they're, they're definitely going through the step. They want the continuous glucose monitors to be a wellness tool, not just a type 1 diabetes tool. So I think absolutely we're moving that direction. The high-tech companies in Silicon Valley, they're fighting tooth and nail to be the first one to you know basically release non-invasive glucose monitors, whether it's a contact lens or some other way of sensing that. Apple's working heavily in that. So I'm excited about that, Drew. I think that is going to be, when people ask me, because I work so much with these Silicon Valley companies, what do you think is the biggest game changer. I think easy access to continuous glucose monitoring, that already in my practice as a game changer. So because I can't people, wait. Yeah. Yeah, because sorry to interrupt <laughs> no, you. No, sure. Yeah. It's it's one of those tools that is so related to behavior change. Oh my God. People yeah. see immediately yeah. that this coffee that they have in the morning, they're like, I'm just only putting a couple packets of sugar inside of that. Right. And they see that spike that happens in their yeah. in their uh, glucose. Then they go and they're like I'm just having, I'm having gluten-free <laughs> avocado toast. Right? right. Yeah. And then they see the spike that happens from having, you know, gluten-free whole wheat, you know, spelt or quinoa yeah. based bread. Then they go and eat some chips that yeah. are out there. Then they eat all these different things. And there's the connection and the understanding of seeing at least a pattern, not to be obsessive yeah, on yeah. any particular thing, but to see that throughout the day, how often they're basically, their body is having this spike, 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 spike. Yeah. And then because without those changes and waiting for like labs for like six months or once a year, people yeah. go to their physical, it's actually hard to make changes in your life. You're right. And you, the other thing that I didn't realize was um, how much it promotes physical activity. Because the thing is, so I have, when I'm, I'm not wearing the monitor now, I probably should because Thanksgiving's coming up. But basically when I'm wearing the monitor on my Apple Watch app, literally you just see a number there. And when you eat something that's starchy, it literally starts going up like a speedometer. And the first thing you want to freaking do is you want to go out and start walking. Because when you start walking and get any physical activity after that glucose spike, you slow down that speedometer. And I've had so many patients that are so sedentary, but when they see that needle start to go up, they're like out after lunch or dinner for like a 20, 30-minute walk just to prevent that 130, 140 to go up to 180 or 190. So it's unbelievable, you know, what it can do. Which again, going back to South Asian and Asian populations that say, well, you know, in, in 
China and India, we were eating all this rice and other stuff. Yeah. Those individuals were moving so much exactly. throughout the day. Yeah. Their life was hard work. They weren't exercising. It was just built into their lifestyle, fetching water, doing stuff, being on the, even getting the rice in the first place, dehusking it, doing all the things that needed to be done. So you needed, you were okay burning that level of fuel, but yeah. we can't eat that same way, which is a tough thing for a lot of people to hear. Uh, but if we keep on eating that way, we are seeing for the first time the kids that are not living as long as their parents. Exactly right. And that was so well said. And especially one population that really concerns me is during the um, time of pregnancy because we're seeing so much gestational diabetes. So diabetes during pregnancy. And a lot of that's happening for the exact same reason because in an ancestral pregnancy, it's not like mom was laid up pregnant for several months. She was still doing all the daily physical activities and household chores. But here now in modern day pregnancies, I'm seeing that women are literally on bed rest. I mean, they're so sedentary. They're not burning glucose on a regular basis. In some parts of the Bay Area, um, I've talked to OBs that have told me 50% of Indian women have gestational diabetes, 40 to 50%. And the problem with that situation is if you have diabetes or glucose problems during pregnancy, that already gets transmitted to the fetus. So the fetus is already bathed in a high glucose environment. It's already producing excess insulin. If you look at pictures of Asian or South Asian babies in the modern world, they already have a miniature, they're like a mini action figure of an adult because they've got skinny arms and legs and a tiny little pot belly. So they're programmed for a glucose-rich, insulin-resistant environment early on. So one of the most gratifying programs that I do for companies is when I can bring in some OBs, a dietitian, a yoga practitioner, and go to a big company and talk about pregnancy wellness because that's an opportunity to really make changes at the root cause so we don't see kids develop these tendencies early on. And many of my patients that are struggling, they're like, why is weight loss not working? Why is this not working? I don't want them to blame their parents, but you know, I tell them that your parents didn't have the awareness around this. That's why they had a sedentary, high starchy type pregnancy, and this probably puts you more at risk. But now that you have the knowledge, we can reduce the risk in your future kid. And a lot of them will come back to me and say, you know, my kid's already eight. I can't change it. I'm like, well, you can make your eight-year-old healthier so your grandkids don't develop this, right? Because this is a generational type thing. So, so. How we live affects the future of our of Exactly our right. Exactly. It's so true. I mean, there's so much here to un unpack. <laughs> the one thing I do want to touch on is that um, – you know, I grew up vegetarian. My dad comes from uh, a Hindu Brahmin background. So they're very like into being vegetarian. And my mom comes from a Jain background in India. Oh yeah. Uh, and the Jains for anybody that's not familiar is um, a culture that's a tradition and a philosophy, way of life, religion. That's really big on nonviolence. So being vegetarian mm -hmm. was crucial in sort of their, they're probably one of the groups of the longest living veg, like longest historical group of vegetarians that's out there. That's still modern day. And so I had no fish. I had no real sources of strong amounts of proteins besides vegetable proteins that were in the diet. And then on top of that, you're a young kid. I was born in Kenya, but I grew up primarily in the States. And you're eating Indian food at home, but you're completely resisting it during the day. But because I'd go to school and I wouldn't really have a lot to eat because I was a vegetarian, I'd eat all the junk foods. Oh, man. My diet in middle school and high school was like eating like honey buns and Sprites and other stuff like that. And occasionally, you know, you get a salad or whatever. Right. Else. And I started to notice uh, the big thing that really actually got me into the health world in the first place is that through a combination of a, of a few different factors, I just had really bad acne. And I didn't realize I had like a dairy sensitivity that was there. Uh, later on in life, I just noticed that even no matter how much I would work out or other stuff, the diet was not translating to any sort of muscle mass gains or increase in performance in sports that I would play. Mm. Finally, when I got introduced into the world of functional medicine through uh, my first uh, business partner, Alejandro Younger, 
I started to do my own labs, not on myself, right. but have them done through the physician that I was uh, connected to. And I started to see all these markers that were just off many of the ones that you had mentioned there. And I was young, I was 25, 26 mm -hmm. years old. And I made the decision at the time, even though I had been vegetarian for a long time, <clears throat> that I'm actually gonna go start eating, I'm gonna minimize the grains, because even being a vegan, I was eating quinoa and gluten-free sure. this and that and so many foods that would spike my blood sugar. I'm going to start eating fish. And I started off with fish. And morally, like it was a big thing. You know, oh, somebody's yeah. been vegetarian the whole entire <laughs> life, especially coming from the Jane community. It was a tough thing to do. But I started noticing immediately changes in my health that were there by minimizing grains, carbohydrates that were there and starting to include healthy fats and healthy proteins. For other individuals that are in that same boat that can relate, you know, so many of my family that probably is listening to the podcast today <laughs> right. is vegetarian. Yeah. You know, how do you help them navigate that and try to help them understand the importance of, of figuring out, not that I'm here to convince anybody not oh, yeah. to be vegetarian, but how do you navigate that, which is sometimes can be such a sensitive topic. So this is where a couple of tools and tactics I use is number one, what we talked about is really making our diets more vegetable focused. And really our traditional Indian diets had a wide variety of vegetables. Like nowadays when I ask people, what are the few vegetables they're eating? There might be just two or three different varieties, but I'm like, how do we add more diversity? Because I'm a little bit biased, but I think Indians can cook vegetables in the most flavorful ways out of any ethnic culture. All if you the do spices it the right way. and all the, all the spices, the most anti-inflammatory. So, so let's get back into that traditional um, sequence of cooking. The fasting that you brought up. So this is uh, an easy sell to South Asians because this is part of our ancestry, right? So, but the, I think the difference with Westerners is when they adopt Eastern habits, the Eastern habits were traditionally more selfless. They were for a purpose. You know, maybe you're sacrificing for a family member that passed away for God. But here, fasting is done for what? I want to get a six-pack, right? I want to burn body Lose fat. Lose those last 10 pounds. <clears throat> Lose those last maybe. 10 pounds. But, you know, for South Asians, I try to remind them, like, for example, Diwali just passed. For religious purposes, I'm like, why don't we try a 12 to 14-hour fast for a few days and do it for specific reasons, see how you feel. Let's incorporate some traditional vegetables in the diet and see how you do. And the thing is, so one trick that I use is, for example, rice. So when you look at carbohydrates, if you eat them in their plain form, so for my rice lovers, I tell them when you have plain rice, it's going to cause a much more abrupt glycemic spike. But what if you made that more into like a biryani or an Asian fried rice? We'll redu reduce the amount of rice by 60%, but you're going to add mixed vegetables, maybe nuts, seeds, and paneer to it, and add a little bit of healthy fat to that. Anytime you add a vegetable, protein, and fat to a starch, you're going to lower the glycemic spike by up to 40%. The sequence at which you eat meals, so something I call meal sequencing. Studies show that if you have vegetables before you eat your carbohydrates, you're going to lower that spike by up to 30%. So I tell them, eat the salad before. If they hate salad, I'm like, take part of your vegetable side dish and eat that first and then eat the rice. You go to an Italian place, a lot of them like to go out for pasta, get a salad first and have it with a vinegar-based dressing because a combination of both can limit that glycemic spike. So you can do some things to game the system. And then I remind them that, listen, being vegetarian, you're still eating a lot of starches. We have to be on top of physical activity. Let's get more walking steps in. It's actually more important. It's even them. more important. Not that it's not important for everybody. No, you're right. They it's have to be more important absolutely. choosing to be vegetarian. It's more important to be physical yes. and have a regular workout routine in whatever capacity that meets 
Exactly. And the beauty is if you tell an Indian to add more or anyone, an Asian, to add more vegetables, protein and fat to their dishes like the lentils and rice, guess what? They're naturally full longer. They're not going to be snacking as much. Fasting, it becomes easier to do. So these are ways you can culturally in a culturally sensitive way sort of introduce practices that weren't that different than our traditional ancestors. It's fantastic. Let's talk about some of the work that you guys are up to today. You know, you've put in, I love the way you explain things, especially like the parking lot analogy. You and your wife have come out with a really awesome course that has these like diagrams and explanations and videos. Uh, would love you to share that with our listeners on the podcast. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you can hear how passionate we are about really making multi-generational changes because, you know, I often take care of whole families, multiple generations, and I find that it's the education part of it. Most of the patients that seem in the clinic are very motivated. They just have the wrong content. So I find that visuals and analogies, animations are a powerful way for them to make the connection between how does like a starchy, healthy meal make me fat? So I created a little bit of a mini animation series, um, and I've got content that a lot of adults and kids are consuming so literally it's like an eight-week online program and a lot of people that may not have time to read the book they can just do that eight-week program and understand all the nuances of what's happening in their body what are the types of exercises that can clear your muscle parking space what are the stress reduction practices but that's pretty much all there on my site so it's been a really fun ride to um, be able to put that into translation kind of really um scratches that creative itch that I had. So speaking about family, how did your own family react to the changes that you started making your own uh, diet, your wife and kids? <laughs> like, you know, it's a real pressure. It's like people are trying to improve their own health. And sometimes your family's along with it. Sometimes they're not along with it. What did you notice? In your well, luckily family? my wife being a pediatrician and she's been very supportive, you know, I got to say my kids, we have not been extremist in raising our kids at all. And if anything, we sometimes are concerned because they actually have not developed a taste for sweets at all. Almost to the point that when we go to birthday parties, we're like, you know, it'd be kind of polite if you had a little slice of cake. And so, do you think that that is related to anything that you guys did? Because I, a lot I, of parents that are listening, they're like, what <laughs> like, does how did that do? happen? So I'll <laughs> tell you, it happened because um, my wife, Shelly, had a very healthy pregnancy with the twins. We had, we had to be, she had to be monitored because she has a high risk twin pregnancy. And then when the kids were born, it was just a fact that we weren't just, you know, giving them these sort of baby foods that are, you know, sweetened or formula. And, you know, the breastfeeding makes a big difference, but already exposing him to vegetables really early on because your taste buds really do get manipulated from an early stage. I got to tell you, despite me doing all this work, it takes a lot of willpower for me to turn down sweets because I grew up just like you. I was a latchkey child. I'd come home and I'd eat Skippy peanut butter out of a jar. I would actually spray Ready Whip and make root beer floats. So it's it's like an uphill battle even for me now to do that. But luckily for them, because early on they had the right principles in place. They don't crave those foods at all. And I think that's a really key thing for those of us raising kids. Don't give in to them. A lot of them, they act like victims. My wife says that the kids have control of the household. Like the parents have no control. And you've got to exert control while they're in your house. You can start retraining those taste buds so they're not addicted to sweets and all these carbs. Yeah, and for anybody that's listening, I mean, I used to eat so much sugar as a kid. And then my taste buds changed, you know, when I started can do it. doing all this and increasing healthy fats and proteins and other things like that. I just started to have less of a craving. And now I just don't. Craves, I like a little bit of dark chocolate every so often, sure. but I don't really crave sweets. The only thing that I still have a little bit of a connection to is maybe it's a maybe it's a placebo effect for me, <laughs> but I put a little bit of honey in my coffee. Right. You know, put yeah. a little tiny bout. Yeah. And that's my vice. There we go. I think that's, that's one, one okay vice <laughs> to have. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and do you still see patients? Do people come and seek you out? And, uh, you know, for the podcast listeners that 
have South Asian parents or looking to like, you know, <laughs> hey, they're not going to listen to me, but maybe they'll go listen to somebody else. Uh, do you guys still see patients? I do. So I see patients two half days a week. It's become a pretty busy practice. But, you know, if, if you're really trying to learn more about this, some really easy resources or if you go to my blog, I did two talks at Google and one of my most popular talks at Google is on the homepage. Just click on that and watch it on YouTube. A lot of the stuff we talked about parking lots and visceral fat differences in men and women. You can consume that all, including I have my lab reports out there. So I explain people this is what I ate when my triglycerides went up. So that's a really easy way you can access that. The book is out there as well, too. And I'm always blogging. So if you join my newsletter, I'm always putting out cutting edge stuff on this for South Asians in all populations. So. One of the things that we talked about before we started the interview is some of the work that you're doing with like corporations. Yeah. I know there's a lot of entrepreneurs that are listening to this podcast and people that are CEOs of different companies that are out there, some small, some really big. Um, tell us about the corporate uh, work that you guys are doing and the and the changes that you're trying to make within the the company environment to create better health practices for people yeah you know I, I, it's such an intensely competitive environment in silicon valley and just trying to find the right talent for each company is a big uh, is a big challenge so often in the first generation about a decade ago when i started this work i felt like companies were offering up benefits just to sort of check off the boxes but the culture of the work environment was not really promoting wellness. But now I think Silicon Valley companies have become a little bit more savvy in their understanding that their employees are suffering from chronic health issues, from mental health conditions. Mental health is like at the top of almost all these companies' um, lists. So I, I think the good news is now they're more engaged than ever, and they're actually inviting me or other speakers to come out to talk about stress and wellness and mental health topics that they weren't addressing before. We can sit down with our HR members and look at the population as a whole and design programs that are meaningful, ways that we can really change, and we can do it in a culturally sensitive way. Um, because before, again, there were a lot of programs happening that were very generic, but now that I've had the opportunity to retrain a lot of on-site nurses, physical trainers, we can make sort of game-changing um, you know, improvements in that health environment. So it's been a lot of fun. Incredible. Well, Dr. Ron, as your patients call oh, you. Oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for being on the Broken Brain Podcast and sharing with our listeners all the great work that you're up to. We'll link to that Google Talk, your book, and all the other uh, links that you'd mentioned inside the show notes so you can find it there. And... Uh, you talked a little bit about social media. Are you active on there? Can our listeners follow I've you on Instagram? I've kind of Instagram? been pushed into it, but yeah, so I'm doing an Instagram experiment that just started, but but um, I'm going to post a lot of those exercises and hopefully practical tips and other resources that people find meaningful, but um, we'll see how that goes. So we'll link up to your uh, social media as well. All right. Thank you so much for coming down to LA it's and been being a pleasure part of the Broken Green Podcast. Thanks for inviting me. All right. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes especially when it comes to your health.